Did you ever think you were made it? I feel I'm so close I could take sweet victory I know this life meant for me yeah, why would you bet on Goliath when we got bet David? Value taming, giving values contagious. This world of entrepreneurs, we get no value to hate it. Now they run, homie, look what I become. I'm the, I'm the one. This is Patrick with your host of Value Taming. Today I'm sitting down with an American spy from uh, Iraq who was a sergeant major. He was a 19-year-old sergeant major who opens up about what it was like to work with them and how he became someone that started leaking information to the U.S. military. Amodi, thank you so much for coming out. Thank you very much for having me. So before we go into your story, I mean, a lot of the things you're seeing right now uh, with the news, you're seeing Ghassam Soleimani, you're seeing Iran, you're seeing World War III, you've seen all this stuff. How are you processing all this information for somebody that's been there before? Uh, it's um, it's kind of surprising, you know, especially the killing of Qasem Soleimani, you know, but I think many people don't realize that what Qasem Soleimani role is in that war in Iraq. I mean, my days goes back all the way down back to 2006, 2005, when Soleimani was just establishing his uh, little militias in Iraq and was uh, going around Iraq communicating with Al-Qaeda and anybody that was fighting against the United States during that period. Uh, so it's kind of surprising, actually, to see finally that we put an end to Soleimani's efforts in the Middle East because Soleimani wasn't just really any uh, Iranian general. He was basically the smartest person in the Iranian regime. And uh, Soleimani had figured out the keys to the Iraqi government, which is something that the American government did not know how to contain or control because uh, Soleimani have controlled the Iraqi government with a fist for the last uh, 15 years, probably. And have you ever had a chance to uh, see him? Have you ever been around him? Um, so I have uh, witnessed uh, the movement of Soleimani about 20 feet when I was working as an undercover intelligence asset for the U.S. intelligence. Uh, he started to move comfortably in Iraq as much as the U.S. troops started taking their hands away from Iraq. Um, as you know, the Iraqi government was completely, uh, majority of it was appointed by Iran. And the person that would choose these individuals or vet them or pro put them through the process to become an asserting position was Soleimani himself. Majority of the people Ma in Iraq that were put into power were chosen by those in Iran. Absolutely. Uh, Soleimani would actually be the one to, to select them and uh, they would never get the position if Soleimani won't prove. So the, the media is painting us to two different uh, Soleimanis. I want to know from you, having been there yourself. One side is, you know, Iran loved them, 82% approval rating, all this stuff that you keep hearing about. You know, people mourned, thousands of people showed up to his funeral. That's one side, right? Yeah. The other side is a brilliant strategist killing Iranians, killing Iraqis, killing U.S. soldiers. You know, vicious, terrorists, Kurds, doesn't matter what it is. Anybody that's in his way, he's going through them. How do you view him yourself from experience? Um, I think he's been the perfect tool for the Ayatollah since the 80s in putting down protest and taking care of all the enemies of the Ayatollah or uh, the enemies in Iraq or Syria or any other countries. Um, he, uh, you can never underestimate the intelligence of Soleimani. Soleimani uh, has uh, controlled Iraq, uh, he called all the shots, and I think that Soleimani was a competitor for us as uh, U.S. government, as U.S. military, U.S. intelligence. He was one of our main competitors until about 2012 when we pulled the troops. He became actually the main uh, person to dominate Iraq. So what do you think about our move to pull the troops in 2012? Good move or bad move? A uh, terrible move. Tell me why. 
a terrible move because once we pulled the troops out of Iraq, it gave Iran the full power to actually finally have their control of Iraq and the Iraqi government itself. Uh, you have an example, the person that died with Soleimani, mm -hmm. Abu Mandil Mohandas, uh, was actually not allowed to be in the Iraqi government at all until about 2012 when we pulled the troops. So if we wouldn't have, let's just say we don't. It's 2012, we don't pull the troops. We stay there. What changes? What would have been different today? Um, none of the, the key figures in the Iraqi government, none of the faces that uh, went towards fame, we would have been as active as they were in the last few years. Uh, I think that uh, pulling the troops it have gave them an opportunity to be part of the Iraqi government. Most of them were wanted by the U.S. government. Some of them were uh, people that fought against the U.S. military, and they would not have found the chance to be in a position like that. They used to compete for that power. Once we pulled the troops, it, it became an open land for them, and they took control completely of the Iraqi government, perhaps because they're the only armed group within the Iraqi government. And they started controlling the Iraqi government one branch after the other, including the army itself. Now, 2012 was Barack Obama uh, as the U.S. president versus now we have Trump. You're in it. There's a big difference between me saying, here's what's going on in the streets of, you know, Baltimore or Chicago or Iran, Tehran, whatever it is, versus you're actually in there yourself seeing the decisions being made from the top of the president. What is the biggest difference between the way decisions were made with uh, Barack Obama versus the way the decisions being made right now with Trump? I think the media uh, would portray them uh, differently to the American people. But what I see differently is that um, President Obama made a huge mistake by pulling the troops the way they did. The troops should have never have been pulled the way they, the way they were. They, they, if we planned a pullout for the troops, mm -hmm. we should have a planned it in stages and we should have not left the Iraqis alone. It's almost like handing you a house without a roof. And that's what really happened in Iraq. We had so many projects, so many uh, things that the US military and the Iraqi military and the Iraqi government were working on together. And all of a sudden, we just disappeared and decided to leave. And uh, people like Halil Amiri, Al Mohandas, um, had an, a great opportunity to come back. But you know, sometimes voters will get out there and they'll say, what a noble thing to do to pull troops out. We got to get out of there. Let them figure it out. Because there's two sides to it, right? One side is like, why are we getting involved with everybody's problems? Why should we get involved with everybody's problems? And then there's another side saying, we got to get involved because there's business dealings, human rights, et cetera, et cetera. What are your thoughts on both arguments being made? I think Iraq fell a victim because of the com competition here between Republican and Democrats. And I think none of them have really looked at the big picture to realize that uh, pulling out the troops would have caused more damage. And you have an example of what happened in Iraq after the troops pulled out. ISIS had the biggest comeback. Uh, perhaps most of the, the ISIS fighters that you faced in Iraq uh, escaped out of prison after the troops pulled out of Iraq. 45 days exactly after the troops pulled out of Iraq, over 600 uh, Al-Qaeda members escaped out of the Abu Ghraib prison. So this was a comeback for everybody, not just for Al-Muhandis, Al-Amri, and, and Soleimani to have even stronger uh, grip in Iraq. It was a comeback for, the, for, for ISIS and uh, the extremists as well. So it left Iraq open, and Iraq became an easy uh, place for anybody to do whatever they want. Do you think Barack Obama and his administration, when they're making a decision like that, do, don't you, th like we would assume, they have all the intel to know that if we make this decision, here's what could potentially happen. Do you think they know that and then they did it, or do you think they didn't know that and then they made the decision? It all depends on the advisors that have. You know, I'm expecting as a president of the United States, you should have advisors that evaluate the situation. 
uh, away from the political views. And that's the problem we've been having in America. Uh, we should not be uh, evaluating things based on political views. Uh, and I think that they knew the consequences, but they were looking to convince the American people and have a win here in the U.S. by pulling the troops. But in Iraq, we didn't win. Uh, many lives were taken. Uh, many Yazidi children were taken as sex slaves. It caused a disaster. Mosul fell under the hands of uh, of ISIS, and that's not only to blame it on, on the Obama administration, also to blame it on the key figures that took over uh, after the pullout of the troops. I mean, Al Maliki back then, the Prime Minister of Iraq, he he, he had a part to it. Um, all the corruption that was happening was also part of what's happening. But I believe once the troops pulled out corruption became at its full capacity in Iraq. It went to 100%. Full capacity yeah, in Iraq? Yeah, absolutely. Worse than Saddam? Oh, absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. I mean, if you think Elaborate, about, yeah. I mean, if you think about Saddam, before Saddam was the, if someone, did any of Saddam minister was, would, would dare to steal something during Saddam? Nobody. But all of a sudden, in, you have a country with so many Saddams, and every single one of them is stealing the country in his own way. So the country just went to a chaos. Everybody was stealing. The army, the Ministry of Oil, everybody was stealing, whatever they are. And, you know, things were getting divided based on the religious background in the Iraqi government. It was not who is qualified in the Iraqi government. Mm -hmm. It was which political party, which Islamic group that you represent, so you take this ministry and you steal the hell out of it. That's how, that's how it was. So things, are you saying things were smoother in Iraq when Saddam was in... Uh I wouldn't say like, you know, things were smoother. Saddam was the only bad guy. Look at it this way. And then all of a sudden you had all the bad guys that competed against Saddam to take power from Saddam. Because the people who actually came and took part of the Iraqi government of Saddam after Saddam had fell out, it was the people that didn't like Saddam who were living in Iran under the protection of the Ayatollah and mostly were uh, members of the battle corps. And they're not any better. They're just as bad as Saddam Hussein. How, how worse can things get right now, the way it's going? I think the way it's been going, mm -hmm. um, before the killing of Qasem Soleimani, we expected them to kill every single protester in Iraq, and they would not leave that place. And that's what I always said. They would kill every single Iraqi, and they're ready to do that before they leave power. Even though... Pre-Soleimani. 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 But killing of the Qasem Soleimani has really left Iran in shock right now. Um, the relationships that Soleimani held in Iraq, him and al-Muhandis, were the, basically the, the, the two key figures that held the whole entire Iraqi government. So now Iran has to come back and establish all these. So Iraq right now is under a golden opportunity to actually free itself from the Iranian influence. You think they'll do it? Uh, I mean, if you have millions of people protesting, and they've been getting shot in the head. You know, hundreds of Iraqis, as you know, has been getting killed, mm -hmm. protesting peacefully uh, for, for their country against the Ayatollah influence in Iraq. And they're still out there protesting as we speak. Uh, I think this is a generation that is very different. They did not live under the Saddam regime, uh, is not afraid of anything. They are facing it the way they are. And I think that these are the future for us. But I don't think they will leave peacefully. I don't think they will. You don't think they're going to leave peacefully? No. I okay. Don't. So how, how much of this, uh, uh, how much of this, Hamoudi, is uh, the relationship of Saudi Arabia trying to protect their interests with the oil, the second largest reserves in the world, 
and then they used Iraq as a wall, as a cushion between themselves and Iran because Iran and Saudi have problems. They do a lot of proxy wars between the two of them. Yeah. How, how much of this has to do with oil? How much of it is religion? How much of it is nuclear? How much of it is power? And how much of it is politics? I think, honestly, um, it's, it has a lot of it to do with politics, had a lot of things to do with, with uh, power and also oil same time because you, you have to know that Iran has been under sections recently but they've been doing a lot of their financing in Iraq uh, behind the table uh, they've been liquidating a lot of their products uh, Iran basically uses Iraq as a as a as a backyard to take care of their finances meaning what? Meaning, uh, meaning what controlling literally the whole entire Iraqi economy they is under their control but is that enough for them to survive? So not enough, maybe, but but they can they can use it to to kind of lower the pressure of the sanctions on them. Do you have intel? Yours, I mean, you're you're big on intel. Yeah. Obviously, your turn. We'll talk about your story here. Yeah. But do you have intel to know what is Iran's ultimate motive? What is it? What are they trying to do? What what are they trying to get through? What is their motivation of wanting to get closer to Saudi? Is there anything there? Who are they trying to retaliate to? Um, what, what is their motive? I think it's the ideology of the Ayatollah is to have the revolution of Iran from the, from the sea to the river. They want to control the whole Middle East. And that's how it's been for us. Iranian influence has been going all over Iraq. It's been going to Syria. It's going to go into Yemen. And they want to have control. They want to have a representative in every country. In Lebanon, they're everywhere. And I think they want to have that grip of the whole entire Middle East. So I believe it is more of over power than it is over anything else. You think it's more power and control yeah. over anything else? Absolutely. So not religion, because a lot of times people think Sunnis and Shias don't get along. They actually have a lot of things in common. It's just a couple of things that they defer, okay. Abu Bakr and Ali. It's not a big difference between the two of exactly. them. Exactly. So oil, you're saying it is a little bit of oil, but it's not a lot of oil. Nuclear, Iran doesn't have any nuclear. They may do some stuff. I know you had some dealing yeah. yourself with uranium that yeah. uh, you, you had an issue going on with that. So power and control. Okay. So you get hired to be a consultant. You're in a room with 10 other folks who have intel, decision makers who know a lot about Middle East. Is there ever gonna be a time where there will be peace in the Middle East? If yes, how? If no, why? Yes will be if we get rid of the Ayatollah and his government. Because as you see the Iranian people They've been protesting for years, trying to get, trying to, to have a voice, but they're being getting killed, just like how the Iraqis mm -hmm. were getting shot in the head. Um, I believe that everybody been minding their own business. Like even the Saudis, look, the Saudis had some influence in Iraq in their own way, but not to an extent to actually cause you harm, not to an extent to control you as a country under their wing. But Iran has been trying to control Iraq under the wing for the last, since 2003, literally. So we will have peace if the Ayatollah goes away. Because the Ayatollah's only goal is to control the Middle East uh, with his fist. Is that possible for that to happen? You're talking about a coup or revolution or regime collapse. That's what, that's what you're talking about. Yeah. Is that possible for that to happen? Uh, I think it's impossible for the Iranian people. Because uh, if they don't by have themselves. The, by themselves, because if they don't have the right backup, they can never do that. As you know, back in 2012, when the Iranians had a protest, and what happened to all the protesters that went on and protested against Ahmadinejad back mm -hmm, then? Mm -hmm. They all got put in prison because they specialize in how to put a protest away, how to calm protest. Then how to put a protest away? away. They the yeah. uh, 
by the Cholas. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, Soleimani was actually the, the perfect uh, expert. What is the formula? Uh, I think uh, the formula is is to do certain things that would get your not get your focus away from what you're trying to talk about or ask. And the reason why Soleimani came to Baghdad because this was a major issue for the Ayatollah. Uh, I think that the Ayatollah does not does not care less if Sunni Iraqis goes out protest against him, but it terrifies the Ayatollah if Shia Iraqis goes out protesting uh, protesting Has against him. Has that started him. yet or no? Of course. Uh, the majority of the protesters that went out to Are protest Shias? were Shia. Wow. So that terrified them. And that's why they sent Soleimani. And uh, Abu Mahdi al-Muhandis, Halil Amiri, were shooting people in the head with a sniper. With all, they used all kinds of things against protesters. And the protesters demanded they would not leave their position. So one other hand, and Soleimani has established a, a room in Baghdad into how they can distract the protesters. And the goal was to actually to drag the Iraqi people and the protesters in a confrontations with the American people or with the, with the American government or with the American military. But the protesters were smart enough because the power of the internet, the power of social media, you have a generation that's completely educated, that is not blind, mm -hmm. that don't watch just a couple channels like we used to do under Saddam and mm -hmm. with Iran. That's yeah. right. And they're very open-minded and they understand politically every single move Soleimani was initiating in Iraq. Perhaps when they attacked the U.S. Embassy in Iraq, uh, the protesters were only about a mile and a half away, but not one protester entered the green zone towards the U.S. Embassy because they knew that would be a trap. Because the goal was to make it look like the Iraqi people attacked the U.S. Embassy, mm -hmm. but it wasn't the Iraqi people. These were the Iranian-paid militias. So there were so many goals to drag Iraq in a confrontation with America, but uh, people of Iraq, uh, they're waking up. They don't want any trouble with America anymore. They just want the Iranian influence to go away. And if that goes away, you think things will uh, settle down in the Middle, Middle East? Absolutely. In a big way? Absolutely. So, so if somebody's watching this and they are uh, thinking about, okay, what would be the method to coup? I mean, obviously, you know the Iranian revolution, how it took place in 78, 79. Yeah. The approach they use, spreading tapes and giving tapes to each other. Yeah. And uh, recording Khomeini's tapes and listen to what he's saying, listen yeah. to what he's saying. The Shah's got all this money. What would be the approach today? I think people have uh, seen everything about the Ayatollah. Um, the truth is already out there. The approach, I think, is to to have uh, to control Iran moves in the Middle East. If we go to negotiation with Iran, we need to make sure Iran does not put its hand in any other country. And if that happens, I think if they leave Iraq alone, Iraq will get up on its own, no problem. The only reason we couldn't get up on our own is because of the Ayatollah government. So if they were to do it today, you know, I talk to a lot of family in Middle yeah. East and what their fears are, parents especially. Yeah. Parents don't mind with their lives. You know, they're yeah. sitting there saying, I'm, I'm 55 years old, whatever. But the kids, knowing, in order for a revolution to happen, you know it's going to happen with students. Yeah. It's going to happen with kids. Younger generations. Younger generations. Yeah. It's always been the case. Green movement, it's always been it's the younger. what young we have in Iraq right now. Exactly. Yeah. It's always a younger movement, right? So, but, but for that to happen, it's going to cost a lot of lives. It's not going to be, they're not going to do it and it's going to be peaceful. It's not going to be 500 lives. It's not going to be a thousand lives. You know that part. Yeah. How do you describe that to somebody to say, if you want democracy, you've got to go through it? Or is it part of the recipe where it's going to be painful for a period? It's, nothing comes for free. I, I've been telling my fellow Iraqis that 
if you think you're going to get it peacefully because they've been protesting peacefully, um, it's not going to happen. They're armed. They have weapons. They have organized militias, organized army. They control the leadership of the whole entire country of Iraq, like the leadership of the Iraqi military as well right now. Um, it, it's not going to work unless blood is going to be shed because they're not going to live, uh, they're gonna not going to leave peacefully. And they have tried, the, the Iranian influence in Iraq have tried all its cards right now. They have ran through all of it. They call the protested a Ba'athist, which is Saddam Hussein, political party Ba'athist. But you can't call somebody who's a 20-year-old a Ba'athist who actually was born right after Saddam had uh, gone away. They don't know what the Ba'ath Party is. Mm -hmm. So they've been accusing them with all kind of names, all kind of accusations, but they ran out of it. They, now, they have accused them of being an agent of the United States. They have accused them of being spies. Who believes it? Are, are, are the Iranian people believe in that? I don't think the Iranian people believe in that. I think the Iranian, Iranian people are pretty smart, and um, they know exactly what the Iraqi people want. Uh, the, our problem as Iraqis is not with the Iranian people. Our problem is with the Iranian government. And that's the difference. Our problem with the ideology of the Ayatollah. I think Iran would be a beautiful country if the Ayatollah wasn't in it. Let me ask you a question. What you see, 82% uh, support uh, that Ghassan Soleimani had when he passed away, the Iranian, and then, you know, well, a lot of people are afraid of voting for the guy, similar to what Trump is, that a lot of Trump voters will never publicly say, I'm a Trump supporter, you know, and then they go vote and they don't talk about it because they're worried about politics within work. Yeah. How much of Iranians, out of their 80-something million that they have, their, their country, how much of their population supports Ayatollah's philosophy, religion, approach of governing a nation? I don't believe the majority of the Iranian people supports the Ayatollah. What's majority? 60%? I believe a lot less than that that supports the Ayatollah. I'm a huge believer in that. Less than 50% support him? Okay. Absolutely. 30% supports him? Have a, have a revolution in Iran and you'll find out. Only reason I'm asking this question yeah. is because there's a big difference between 50-50. Because 50, yeah. and, and America right now is what? Say 45-45. Yeah. And 10 in the middle independent libertarians, which they'll go, yeah. you know, uh, swing, uh, they'll go this way or the other yeah. way, right? But you got 45-45, Republican, yeah. Democrats, right? Yeah. Do you think it is a 50-50 split? Or do you think it's more 30% that support Ayatollah and 70% cannot wait for the regime to fall and collapse? I think 70% cannot wait for the regime to, they okay. cannot wait for the regime. Because look, what, an example of Saddam Hussein. What did Saddam Hussein convince the people? That the majority of Iraqis wanted him in power. He expected to fight for six months defending Baghdad, and it took him how long for him to fall down? Three weeks. Because if you tell the people and convince them that everybody support you, people can't express their opinions in Iran. You don't know how some of the Iranians feel. I reached to some of the Iranians inside of Tehran on social media, and I asked them, and secretly they would tell me what they feel. But I know when they go, or go to their social media, they're supporting Ghassan they're supporting uh, the Ayatollah of Iran because they're afraid to. And I, I understand that methodology because I lived under yep. that kind of control. I lived under Saddam Hussein, and uh, God, if you open your mouth during Saddam Hussein, you'll be gone. So um, I think that in way deep inside of the Iranian people's heart is they don't want the Ayatollah. They want their country back. Now, let me give you the other uh, uh, devil's advocate question for you yeah. as well. Just curious to know what you'll say about this. Yeah. You just said, you know, mistake was made in 2012 when Barack Obama pulled the troops and the next thing you know, uh, it went from one Saddam Hussein to 100 Saddam Hussein's being in uh, Iraq and exactly. it's in shambles, right? Yeah. Okay, ISIS came back up, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Okay, great. Now somebody may say, okay, if there's a revolution in Iran, who is the voice? Who replaces it? Who 
becomes the new leader. At least at that time, there was a candidate, and it was Khomeini. Khomeini, Khomeini is yeah. going to come, and he was somebody people yeah. can rally behind for them. And against Mossadegh, with the help of CIA, it was the Shah, right? Yeah. People rallied behind Shah is going to make Iran more yeah. westernized and give women more power, etc., etc. One, don't you need a personality like that for that to happen? Like you need somebody to need rally behind. Yeah, who is exactly. that person today? I don't think Iran's got somebody like that uh, today. You know, Iran does not have, but I think that's what the Iranian people needs to figure out. Because if you look into the protest of their, if you look into the protest in Iraq, they figured this out. They protest, they, they were out protesting for about a month or so. And then they figured out, we can't just keep asking for something that we don't know what we're asking for. We need to appoint a person that we think is the right leader for this country. Who's we? We is um, who? As Iraqis. So Iraqis actually have found a, an Iraqi politician that has not been under the Iranian influence. And this person... Sunni or Shia? Uh, he's actually a Shia, but he is not uh, a religious guy. Okay. He is more of a kind of a... He's just like a, a liberal mentality. Mm, got it. Uh, he, he's not under the Iranian influence. Perhaps he's been speaking against the Iranian influence. And... Um, he has uh, a very long history of speaking against uh, the religious figures. The problem with what ruining Iraq right now is the religious figures in politics. And I think that the Iranian people, they have a plenty of figures that are not religious, uh, that wants to help Iran as a country. And I think that if the protesters in Iran figure this out, this could become a possibility. But I don't think the Ayatollah would leave peacefully. That would never happen, and we all know that. Where, where would he go if he did leave? Like, let's just say, you know, uh, the Shah leaves, Shah goes here, you know, he goes to all these different places where he's welcome. Where does uh, the uh, Ayatollahs go if they leave Iran? He has nowhere to go. That's the point. <laughs> so that's what I'm saying is that Ayatollah would never leave peacefully. I think the Ayatollah will fight all the way to the end. And I, I, as I said, is they are ready to kill every single citizen of the Iran or Iraq or anywhere else before they can leave. I don't think they care. I think they believe in the ideology of the revolution. They believe the ideology, the religious ideology. And I think they, they love their ideology more than they love their own people. They love the ideology more than they love their own Absolutely. people. Absolutely. Indeed. I think that's that's what wow. been. Uh, it's a shame. Yeah, that's what that's what it been in Iraq. It's a shame. So so let me ask you. So now we talk about Barack Obama. Now let's talk about uh, President Trump. And in the past, you've been critical of President Trump with uh, him putting the uh, uh, what do you call it the Muslim ban and and what that was like. But what are your thoughts about what he's doing today with the sanctions he put and what he did in April of uh, 2019 with the IRGC because uh, Soleimani was a part of it and. He categorized them as a terrorist, et cetera. It's a terrorist organization. Yeah. What do you think about the approaches he and his administration have taken in the last eight and a half months? Um, I think before the election, I wasn't really sure of President Trump. After the election, he has proven to me that everything I wanted to see to happen, specifically in Iraq or the rest of the Middle East specifically is where I am uh, looking at, uh, is everything I wanted to do, he did it. And that's the power of asking the right people, talking to military advisors, understanding from people of experience. And I think that's why I gave uh, President Trump a five-star, because he has proven to me that everything he was doing is for a purpose. And I think that President Trump has been going on the right direction when it comes to the Middle East. And uh, for that, I supported him 
on the travel ban. Um, because there was a reason why. You supported him on the, on the I travel ban. I endorsed President Trump officially on the travel ban, Got actually. Yeah. And the reason for it? Because we did have individuals that we battled in Iraq as a terrorist end up coming inside of the United States. Some of them went to court here and were arrested by the FBI. And there's a reason that we had to do that because um, we, during Obama's time, we canceled some of the background checks they were supposed to do on mm -hmm. some of these individuals. You have to know when Al Qaeda member run away in Iraq when there are uh, when they're put an arrest against him and they end up running out of the country they end up going where they leave Iraq goes to either Jordan they used to go to Syria back in the day mm -hmm. and from there we started taking refugees off for the UN and some of them end up coming to this country that's that's kind of like a very uh, that's very weak uh, you know I think that we need to protect ourselves other country here and because our enemies wants to come here. They want to come inside of this country. And uh, um, some of them that I have known uh, and seen personally end up making it into the U.S. And I couldn't believe my eyes. I couldn't believe what I heard when I found out they were here. So I am not against refugees in a way, what I wanted to say. But I want to make sure we have a very strict process. We can bring fine, good people from the Middle East, just like myself. I'm an immigrant myself, like came to this country, started all over again. And we need to bring people who would be a great addition to this country. But I'm against people who would come to this country and want to harm it and will make life for people like myself extremely difficult. So you support his decisions he made. You support the sanctions he put. He keeps increasing the sanctions on Iran. He's supporting, he's telling other uh, UN nations, hey, tighten your own restrictions with Iran. Don't do business with them. Uh, these are all moves being made by somebody who would like to see an internal uh, regime collapsing. These are, this is just a formula. If you look at exactly. the formula on how yeah. to make a cheesecake, you put that together, boom, you have, yeah. this is the recipe on how to create yeah. a coup, yeah. you know, people against the regime, you know, a revolution. Is that kind of the direction you're seeing that going? Absolutely. Way, okay, so you're I, seeing... I think he put a zip tie on the Ayatollah's neck and slowly he is closing that zip tie tighter and tighter and tighter. And as you can see what's been happening in Iran in the last... 48 hours that's that's an example to show you that this is the way to get the Iranian people to make a move towards the Ayatollah you know uh, Venezuela I have a lot of people in our company that are from Venezuela yeah. okay yeah. and they came here they love their country just like yeah. Iranians love their country I'm sure there's somewhere exactly. inside that you love uh, yeah. uh, Iraq and your family and the, your yeah. two uncles yeah. that were killed by Saddam's regime exactly. I mean listen there's an emotional connection affinity to the land that you have exactly, right yeah. but then you got to do what you got to do you got to move on and go take exactly. yourself you have kids I have kids you want to have them be in a safer place Venezuela is uh, got two regimes you got Maduro and you got Gaido right so today Gaido is a voice that people can get behind and people can vote and people can uh, uh, rally behind a figure I, I don't know if an opportunity like this for Iran's uh, going to come too often, like what they have right now. Yeah. I mean, it's not like it comes once every three years. I don't think yeah. an opportunity like this with the way the sanctions have been put, because in order yeah. for Iran to have the opportunity for a coup or revolution or regime collapse, there has to be sanctions. There has to be pressures. Yeah, the government pressure, has yeah. to be tightened. They, there has to be a lot of fear from the top, yeah. and, and U.S. has to create the sanctions. So if another president gets elected and they remove the sanctions, Iran's going to start doing business again around the world with their oil. Exactly. They're not going to be afraid of their people right now. But my worries is Venezuela has a figurehead. Iran doesn't have a figurehead. Exactly. And I would, I would certainly hope if they do want to see something happen, 
They have to be more urgent than they've ever been to rally behind a personality. I think the Iranian people needs to be extremely careful on any steps they would take right now during their protest against Ayatollah. Because you need to go back in history and figure out when Musawi and Ahmadinejad were competing against each other, what was the point of that election? What happened to all the Iranian activists that went on and spoke uh, against Ayatollah? Where are they now? They're Prison. gone. They're gone, yeah. Because that was an opportunity to actually figure out who are the enemy of the Ayatollah. And I think they need to be careful because this is what the Ayatollah did in Iraq. And as we speak, just in the last 24 hours, they have assassinated over 10 Iraqi reporters. They've in the last 24 hours. Last 24 hours. As we speak, they're assassinating people right now in Iraq because their goal is to find out the activists, the most active voices in these protests, get rid of them. And once they're gone, these protests becomes just a loose cannon and they go away. And that's been the style that Ayatollah has been using. He did it in Iraq. And literally, um, I think the protesters in Iraq don't realize this by now, but most of their important figures who started this protest are gone. They've been buried. And the Iranian people need to be careful and they need to be sure who would they appoint as a, as a I, figure? That's the part I agree with, because you yeah. can't get behind the wrong person. you got to figure exactly. out, and you cannot move. you you, you got to be having yeah. meetings right now, figuring out who you're going to be doing. There's some people in the U.S. that uh, would like to go out there and shop Halabi's, you know, Reza shop Halabi's son. There's been yeah. conversations about him wanting to do it. I, yeah. I, I think it's going to take a, a lot of people coming together to decide who they want to do it with. Let me ask you, who who is Iran scared the most of in the Middle East? Of course, U.S., they're not happy about the way Trump's... Uh, um, making the decision, yeah. putting on the sanctions. But who is Iran afraid of in the Middle East? I think uh, there is not an individual that Iran is afraid of in the Middle East, but Iran, and the Ayatollah specifically, is afraid of his own Shiite in the Middle East to turn against him, because that's what happened in Iraq. And you have to know that Shiite Iraqis do not follow the Ayatollah. They follow uh, Al-Sistani in Iraq. They do not have the same belief as the Ayatollah. Uh, perhaps the Ayatollah has appointed himself as the biggest religious figure for Muslims, but we do have a very small percentage in Iraq that are the followers of the Ayatollah, and they're the ones that control the Iraqi government, and they're the ones that he appoint uh, to the rest of Iraq. So I think that Iran is afraid of its own believers to turn against them. And that's what I think is, terrifies the Ayatollah to see Shiite protesting against the Iranian government. I only ask because I wonder who the people protesting would need their support to help them that take place, right? Because not every, every uh, country around the world would like to see Iran's uh, empire fall, not all of them. There's yeah. some that may not want to do because they'll have control over the oil. You know, uh, some nations over there may help and support more China, Russia, it depends because it's yes and no, but it's not fully in. It'll be interesting to see who the people can go to have some backing that gives them courage to go up against Ayatollah's regime. It, it, it has to be different than the Iraqi experiment. Like in Iraq, we do have this individual who is part of the Iraqi government. He's been living in England. Uh, he, he's educated. He's a fearless person. Uh, but for Iran, I do not believe it will be somebody from inside of Iran. It has to be an Iranian who is not inside of Iran. Because if he's inside in Iran, you know that person will be under So the somebody influence. from the outside has to go into Iran? Absolutely. Absolutely. That will be the perfect way. So you know this person is not part of uh, Talat. 
It's not part of their intelligence. It's not somebody that, they, you know, they haven't played this game before. Uh, Ayatollah has done this before. Ayatollah right now, I think his next move is he will try to appoint somebody that secretly is under his control. And that's what I'm afraid for, for the Iranian people. And then you're not doing anything. You're not achieving anything at that point. So it would have to be somebody that the Ayatollah cannot psychologically control. It's a very small window they got. I don't think it's a big window. It's a touchdown. I think it's a very small window they got yeah. here. You're uh, so close, but, yeah. uh, you it's know. A, it's, a, it's a very hard touchdown for the Iranian people. I know. But it's possible if they find the right personality and support that personality against Ayatollah. And I think that it's possible. The shot clock is ticking, though. Yeah. The shot clock is ticking. That's the biggest thing. And when it's all about the leadership of the protesters. That's, that's why... It's all about the leadership of the protesters. Yeah. What do you mean by that? It's like they have to have a leadership. They have to have a people that can actually decide what to do. Because if you keep protesting, you can just keep protesting. You need forever. a rally cry. You need, yeah. you need somebody at the top that's You need, uh, you need smart people that yeah. know exactly where they can move. And that's how the Iraqi protesters actually been figuring out things. Uh, over the, the last few days. So let's, let's go back to your story. So for you were uh, born and raised in Iraq, right? Yeah. And you are uh, uh, right now 34, which means you were born in what year? You were, uh, 1986. 1986. Yeah. So it, it, take me from the point of you're 12 years old and you get arrested. What, what happened there with your experience in Iraq? Um, you know, when, you, I, when I was born in Iraq, I, I grew up in Iraq really not knowing what kind of world I was living in. But the older I was getting in Iraq, I was realizing that there wasn't really much freedom that I was living under. Because you watch the elders being afraid of every single move they, they, they want to make. This is during Saddam. During Saddam. Yeah. It, it was a very well-policed country. Uh, but this way, I mean, we have over like 35 different intelligence agencies under Saddam that police the whole country. So people were afraid to talk to their own wives about Saddam. People were afraid to talk to their own parents. People didn't have a trust in them, on each other completely. And people were afraid. So when I, when I opened my eyes in Iraq, I watched a family that's being afraid, couldn't trust me, couldn't trust each other. Your own family? Absolutely. Every single family in Iraq. Every single family in Iraq. We had brothers that put their brothers away and they wrote a report to the Ba'ath Party. What they did is they- What's the level of loyalty though? Who are you loyal to? It, it has to be only Saddam. Because Saddam had made the rules of that if you don't report anything that you heard, you're part of it and you'll get executed just like the other person. So some people can get killed just for the fact they heard something negative against How the regime. How old were you the first time you saw that or witnessed it, an execution? Um, I mean, I was like around 11 years old because Saddam actually used to take uh, some of the people that used to get executed, yeah. they used to take kids out of school to witness it. What's the outcome? What's the purpose of doing that? Psychologically to, to make you think before you do anything against the government. Got it. It's a psychological move, and it was to make you think. To what show you what emotion was it producing in you at the, as the 11-year-old kid? Were you? I didn't want to watch death. I didn't want it. I wanted to watch it. But most of your teachers are bath party members, and they tell you what to do. And if you don't, a whole report could be written against you. You know, it could end your life. It could end your family life. So you really didn't have much to say. Uh, you had no options wow. other than following. Uh, perhaps some of my teachers had a, a gun in their belt when they walked to class because they were bath party members. And what kind of argument would you have with that teacher? None. You just followed and that's what it was until I, I kind of got the real taste of it when I got arrested at, at age 12. When you were 11, you saw that you went home. Did you tell your mom, mom, this is what I saw today, this is what I saw dad no. today, or no? Nothing. Nothing was getting discussed at home because I know my parents would not answer me. 
So what is your relationship with your mom and dad at the time? Like, how are you speaking to them? What are the conversations like? Uh, just the normal conversations. I'm hungry. We know not to talk about anything politics. We know not to talk anything Zero. about them. Zero. They would not hear you. They will actually turn around and tell you something that you know it's fake. So there was no point to talk about it. You couldn't talk about Saddam anywhere. We had an example that says the walls have ears. Even the walls. Even the walls had work for Saddam. And you can't talk to anything about it. So they taught everybody essentially to be snitches is what they did. Exactly. He wanted everybody to exactly. be Exactly. And reporting. Reporting was massive during Saddam time. Like people writing reports secretly to the Ba'ath Party member. And the Ba'ath Party's kind of put that up to whoever it is. And reports were being written to each other. We had family members that reported each other. So it was, it was very well policed country. And he wanted it this way. This was his psychological formula. Who is his example? Game. Who did he learn from? I, I would think, you know, there's a lot of controversies that, you know, Saddam was an agent of a foreign country. That Saddam, I think Saddam was not uh, a stupid guy. He was smart. He was extremely smart. And intelligent-wise, uh, the way he looked at people, uh, he was meant, you have to know, Saddam worked as the head of the Iraqi intelligence before he became uh, a deputy or a president in Iraq. 79. During the 70s. Yeah. Uh, he had a natural um, instinct. And he established all this formulas to actually, even, the, even his own family members, if they did something against him, he would know just by the way he looked at them. And that's the kind of guy Saddam Hussein was. Just by the way he looked at them. Did, did anybody ever do a investigation on him to see what inspired him? What did he study? What books did he study? Who did he follow? Which style of leadership did he uh, admire? Did any, was there any kind of stories there that gives insight on him? Uh, no, actually. He, he was, uh, you know, when he was in prison, when he was out in Egypt, and he, he has read a lot of books. He's very, he's very well educated. Even though, like, he earned his military rank in a kind of fast way yeah. for being the president. But I think... He was very well educated, very well balanced, and um, he is a very different, unique person psychologically. And I think that's how he controlled Iraq. That's how he controlled every single person that worked under him. Even his own family members were terrified of him, that they didn't know what his next move would be. So he policed this country in a very unique way, where he turned every single person um, into informant. So 12 years old, what happened to you when you got arrested? I was walking out of, out of school mm -hmm. um, and I, I came out of school and it was a common thing down there, you know, if, if you are not an important figure of society, uh, usually the people who are like in the bath party or, or part of the Saddam's government, their kids would have like a, a military color Mercedes that will pick them up with two Republican guards. Um, if you are not one of these people, you will be walking home. You'd be walking the 10 miles or whatever the miles that you have to walk to school. And it was a common thing for Ba'ath Party members to stop you and interrogate you in the street. This was a common thing. They can stop, they can talk to you, uh, they can take whatever they have, what you have in your pocket, and you don't have much to say uh, to do that. So it was a, a police officer. There was a three police officers that actually approached me, and one of them looked different than the others. And that's the way to actually distinguish a Ba'ath Party member. Something about them always looked different than average people the way they dress, the way they have their, their badges on their, on their chest. The, the way they would dress is a very different way. The way they would talk, you can feel it in the mm -hmm, tone. Mm -hmm. This is someone of a power. And when he approached me, he asked me if I smoked, because it was a common thing, teenagers smoked in Iraq. 
and if I have any cigarettes, I didn't have anything, and I had money in my pocket. And he asked me, he's like, well, do you have any money? I can go get some cigarettes. And I said, no, I don't have anything, and I just kept walking. So he put his car in front of me, got out, and he came to me and he said, turn around, and started searching me. And he found money that I kept in my pocket. And uh, it was uh, about 250 dinars that I had in my wallet. I had other money that I would keep in my socks, knowing this would happen at any time. And I kind of felt at that point that, for me, this meant the world. This was like money I put away over months to mm. buy myself a shoe. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, during the sanctions uh, under Saddam, that things were very difficult. You know, I was walking I with, a, with a messed up shoe and that was open from the front. I couldn't even walk properly. And uh, this was money from holidays and everything people would give you away and just kind of put it together to, uh, to eventually have the price that would match towards, uh, you know, towards a used shoe maybe. And uh, when he took it away, I felt like I didn't want to keep my voice uh, shut anymore. So I ended up trying to take my money back uh, and I cursed him. And uh, when he hit me, uh, this was a big thing in our culture, once you curse him, I cursed him bad. And uh, he grabbed me and threw me in the truck and uh, drove me for about 45 minutes into the Iraqi Ministry of Interior inside of a prison. And what was it like when you went in? It was scary. I went to an area that I, mean, I never 12 been. 12 years old. I mean, I, I, they drove for about 45 minutes. And I still remember the conversations between the two uh, guards that were mm -hmm. sitting in the back and him. And they said, hey, he's just a kid. He's only 12. Why don't you just kick him in the head and let him go home? And he said, if you guys keep talking, I'll put you where I'm putting him tonight. And I realized at that point I wasn't going home that night. And uh, it came to a checkpoint, which is a place actually I used to see going by, but you're not allowed to go inside mm -hmm. of that place. And it was the Iraqi Ministry of Interior. And once I passed the checkpoint and I drove about, it drove about like a mile and a half. This was all the intelligence headquarters, all the scary stuff that you heard about, but you never seen. And I pulled, to, I got pulled into a slide door that opened and I went inside and it was a, a prison, but it, I wouldn't say it looked like an American prison. It actually looked like a zoo, it's cages. And I saw cages, like it was just cages and fences and there was a concrete buildings behind the cages. And I um, sat there in a the car, they took me out and I went to a room and they gave me a, a pen and a paper and they said sign. And I looked around all my angles of the room, there were people with bats, wearing a uniform, wearing the exact same uniform as he is. Most of them carry the same last name that he had. They were actually from the same tribe. And when I took the pen, it was dark. I was terrified. I took the pen and I signed. Later on, I found out I signed on a paper stating that I was an entire government that attacked a uh, a police officer and a Ba'ath Party member to kill him. So I was not being treated as a child. I got treated as an enemy of the state once I signed that paper. And I, I walked into prison. So then what happened? How I, long were you in there? I was there for about three weeks, three okay. to four weeks. How'd you get out? My family have found out. So I had actually about 250 in my, my socks mm -hmm. that I kept. And they didn't find out about the money. I went inside and the prisoners asked me, they're like, hey, are you fighting with somebody? Are you, are you helping somebody? Like, why are you here? You're a kid. Are there any other kids there, or you're the only no, kid? No, just my, I'm, I oh, was you're myself. you're the only kid. Yeah, I was, I was just walking into a bunch of prison full of adults, and it's not like an American prison. It's like a warehouse that's full of people. Perhaps they didn't have a place to sleep. Everybody kind of slept in a different angle mm -hmm. because they just kept people, and the, there was no beds, there was no pillows. How many people in the place? I would say about maybe 300 people. Okay. And uh, th there was one bathroom, and I was terrified, and one of the prisoners asked me, and he said, like, 
why did you why did you why did they bring you here? I said I just refused to give my money, and they couldn't believe it. Were they were they protective of you, the uh, prisoners? They were good. They, to they you? were actually. Okay, so yeah. I had a prisoner help me out, and I said I I'm dying. I don't care what happens to me. I'm dying just to let my family know where I am, because then they can do something, or at least just the family to know. I felt at that point my life is over, and. Uh, I told him that I have some money in my pocket. I have kept in my socks. And I, he, he said, you know what? Give me the money. I gave him the money. He went and called one of the guards at night after everybody went away. And there was a guard that actually cleaned the office of the commanding officer in that prison. And there was a landline in there. And you know back then that you, nobody can tell if they used your landline or not. And he told me that person took money and he could make a phone call. Mm. So I, they gave that guard the money. I saw the prisoner hand him the money. I gave him the phone number of our landline, and I was praying that somebody, one of my family members, would answer the phone because they'd probably be looking for me. It was late at night, and I didn't come from school. And they were actually looking all over the place, and my brother answered the, the phone, and I asked him, please, to let me know who would answer the phone to know that he called them. My brother answered the phone, and he told him that he's in prison, this is where he is, and my family started coming to the prisons, trying to negotiate with the commanding officer in prison to give him money and would smash the reports. Because if the reports doesn't get smashed, I was going to go to a bigger court and I was going to get probably executed. And Saddam's government could care less how old you were. Once you're considered an enemy of the state, you're an enemy of the state. Permanent. Yeah, I was being treated as a fighter. Now, at this point, yeah. how, what, is it, what feeling are you, is it producing in you? Uh, is there hate? Is there anger? Absolutely. Is there animosity? What are you feeling? I would say I entered that prison a child. I did not leave the same. When I walked away from that prison, and uh, when my, uh, you know, I actually didn't know where they were taking me when they took me out of prison. I was being tortured. I was being hit. I came out, and I was in a really bad shape. And I thought they were going to finish me right there. That's what I thought. They took me out to an area that I'd never been in, in three weeks. And a slide door opened, and uh, I uh, saw my dad. And uh, I think at that point, I, I, I was just in a very different stage of my life. And when I left that prison, I didn't know what was happening during that time. I didn't know any negotiations between my family or the commanding officer in the prison. And when I left that, that place, I don't think my life has ever been the same. I left that place completely uh, carrying hate against these individuals because I saw their, uh, the violence they carried against feeling against of revenge absolutely absolutely and were your were your uncles already killed at this point or no they were already dead yeah Did, so they, yeah. They, so that's already expected yeah and and the amount of hate that produced wasn't close to the amount of hate it produced no. you being in jail absolutely okay because i saw like how they treated you how they treated you like they try to get confessions out of you you didn't have and uh, i didn't even know what to say at that point in my life you know i didn't even know what mm -hmm. to give them and if they asked for something i would have gave it to them if they asked me to sign on 100 papers i would sign it just to not get beating and not get hit and when they hit you they hit you hard they don't care they treat you as an animal and that's the people that controlled you and ruled your country do you remember any of it till today absolutely like do you wake up in the middle of the night flashbacks or no you don't have uh, those things anymore since you feel safer no not flashback to prison but actually uh, I would say after they have a broken me, I became less afraid of them. I was w way less afraid of them leaving that prison. And to this day, you know, after even I became an intelligent Not everybody's asset, like that, though. Uh, yeah, some people, you know, some people are uh, going to walk away. They're going to, you know, be a victim. But for me, uh, I was less afraid of them.
Yeah. When that typically happens, you produce either somebody that uh, confines and, you know, kind of uh, gets quiet and uh, stays, doesn't yeah. say anything because they're afraid. Yeah. But you can also produce a true believer that never forgets the way you treated them. Yeah, absolutely. And that stays with them. It's obviously, yeah. that's what happened with you. Yeah. So now you leave. At 17 years old, what gave you the opportunity? At that time, you're nine, it's 1998, you're 12 years old. Saddam is still uh, uh, running Iran. 03 is when his regime falls, right? Because yep. he's 79 to 2003, 03. Yep. What, what's happening during this time? Because I know you said in one place where you said, I thought Saddam was going to live 500 years yeah, and exactly. the regime was never going to change. Exactly. When it happened to you, do you remember the moment where you were at when that took place? Yeah, I was in my house. I was in my house. And uh, I opened my front door and there was an American soldier standing there. And that's what everybody was scared to make one move towards that American soldier because they thought that the Americans would pull out like 1991 and that Saddam would be coming back to take revenge mm -hmm. after people. So people were very hesitant. People couldn't process the point that Saddam's gone, actually. This, this tyrant that controlled Iraq for 35 years is gone. It's over. People couldn't believe that fact. But when I opened that door and I saw an American soldier, kind of like, uh, I was at a point where I just wanted to kind of pinch myself. I couldn't believe it. Let, let me ask you a question. Yeah. You said something. I was reading it as well, yeah. where you asked the soldier that came to you, yeah. you guys going to leave? No, we're not going to leave. We're going to stay here. Yeah. Is there a feeling of letdown when the American troops would come, you felt safe, and then they left, you felt heartbroken because the soldiers Absolutely. didn't care? You feel that experience when they leave. You're heartbroken. Absolutely. I give you my trust. I thought you guys were going to take care of me, yeah. but now America lets you down again. Oh, absolutely. I, I mean, 1991, this is what happened. This is why the thousands of Iraqis died because they thought Americans were going all the way down to, the, to Baghdad, and then they pulled out. And Saddam came after what he did to them. He buried them alive. Kamakal Ali came over, his cousin, and buried everyone alive that didn't fight against the Americans. So th th there was a, a doubt for the Iraqi people. There was a doubt that we can't really trust the Americans if they would really take him out. Maybe he'll come back. But for me, as I got that assurance from that American soldier, I said, are you guys staying, or this is just another comeback, like 1991? So he says he's staying. What's your next move? Uh, next move, actually, I opened the rest of the door. We started having a conversation. Because if he said no, I would have shut down the door and walked away. But when he said yes, I opened the rest of the door and I started asking him a question. And I, I uh, had about, like, maybe I walked with that soldier as he was moving, and I asked him a lot of questions. I asked him all the questions that I needed to ask that they were not leaving. Now, at this time, do you know a lot? Have you been inspired to Absolutely. want to do your own due diligence? Yeah, and because kind of you knew things, but you couldn't talk about them. Perhaps I, I learned English, but I was never able to speak it. That was the first time I ever uh, spelled an English Does word anybody know. know the internal rage that is being created in you during this time? Or no? Does, you, does your mom and dad know? Like, no. Are they saying, how about you, John? Just relax, you know, No, I actually was, I kept a very, uh, I was so um, oppressed after leaving prison because anything would, I would do, I would die immediately. Anybody I would run, if I run to the wrong person. So my life went to like a chaos after Did you prison. go to school? Was a lot of self-education? I, I went to school and I, I, would, I would tell you, I, have, I went from being an A student to an F student. I couldn't care anything about school. But how'd you learn English though? What, what? I was studying at home. Oh, so that's what yeah. I'm saying. You became a self-starter. Yeah, uh, yeah, I started home. I, my dad has a library. Intel? Oh, he has a library. Yeah. Got he it. has a library, and actually his books he got from England That when he was in England. Now, what and was he religion-wise? What, what is your dad? My dad was actually uh, a Shia, but he was he was like an atheist, but he didn't tell anybody. He was an atheist, but he didn't <laughs> yeah. tell anybody. And yeah. your mom? My mom was a Sunni, yeah. Your mom was a Sunni. Yeah, was a Sunni. And yeah. by the way, Saddam was a Sunni, right? Even well, though He was uh, a Sunni. Yeah, yeah he was a Sunni, even though... Yeah. Yeah. So, okay, so then... 
you're following him, you're kind of asking all these questions, et cetera, et cetera. What's your next move after that? Because I know the Iraqi military is getting started. You're the 19th soldier. How does that part take place? Uh, they made an announcement on the radio. They, they, they were looking for new members to join the new Iraqi military after they let go of the old Iraqi military. I felt my freedom was, wasn't going to come free. Uh, I wasn't just going to sit home and freedom was going to come all the way. If I wanted to have a constitution for the first time in my life that would protect my right as a child, somebody has to go out and fight for it. And my generation was just at the door. And I decided I was going to go join the new Iraqi military because I don't want to sit home and wait for somebody to control me again because, you know, Al-Qaeda had entered Iraq. The Ba'ath Party members started slowly turning into uh, religious figures from a loyalist to Saddam to more religious figures because anything against America becomes automatically a religious movement. And um, I wanted to go and fight against these guys equally in an equal battle, gun to gun. Were you recruiting? Uh, was I'm sorry. Were you recruiting, or uh, no, the I, new military was recruiting? The new mil the new Iraqi military was recruiting. Actually, the American military they were doing the whole processing the recruiting. In that time, how yeah. are you viewed in the community? Are you voiced? Do you have pull? No, Do you no. have influence? No, nothing. I you're just a, quiet, a seventeen year old kid. It's quiet person. You never heard anything. From nothing. Me. Yeah. Nothing. No one knows what you're thinking about. Nobody. So it's not like you're playing soccer yeah. outside. You got fifty no, no, no. friends. You're the cool guy. Nothing. Came from inside the, a dark room in the house to straight to the Iraqi military. Got it. So 90 Iraqi military, 19 people, 19 soldiers there. Yeah. Uh, where does that relationship go with you then becoming a sergeant major at 19 years yeah. old, where the typical sergeant major is 40 or 50 years old, exactly. you're getting that responsibility at 19 years old. Exactly. Why would they trust you to be a sergeant major? Uh, in, 2000, you know, in 2003, when they established the first uh, battalion of the yeah. Iraqi military, which I was a member of, um, people were actually encouraged to do something. But once Al-Qaeda and the Islamic uh, movements realized that they were going to have people of an Iraqi background fighting side side by American, that was more dangerous to them. Because we didn't have a digital database in Iraq. You can tell who's who. You couldn't tell anybody. We had that instinct to know what area you come from, where you live in Iraq. We can tell if you're actually where a ba if you're a Ba'ath Party member, if you're a Republican Guard officer. We can just tell by talking to you or what areas you come from, or what neighborhood do you live in because your social status is what determines who you are. So that was a scary for all these groups to see Iraqis that would come fight with Americans. And they actually, I got in the first shipment that got sent to Karakush, uh, which is actually near the Iranian borders, to be trained by a an American company called NPRI, uh, American Retired Vietnam Veterans, uh, uh, mostly Marines and Army uh, veterans. And the second shipment that was supposed to make it to the base got blown up by a car bomb. And from that moment, everybody was discouraged to uh, join the Iraqi military. And in 2004, I went to Haifa Street, which was the most dangerous two miles in Iraq during that time, and to retrieve bodies of a new Iraqi recruits that actually just came in to fill an application. So that's how much they were focused on Iraqis joining the fight with Americans side by my side. And in a long battle, I had 29 soldiers, I left there with nine. I was shot here in my eye, I had a shrapnel above my right eye, I had a shrapnel on my knees. and. Uh, once they started the killing towards Iraqi soldiers working with Americans, the Iraqi people automatically became discouraged from that idea because people have families. They would go home at the end of the day and that's where they can get you, hurt you or hurt your family. So 50% of people in my unit in 2004 after that battle quit their job. Did, did, they, did yeah. they ever come after your family or no? I never went home. So when's the last time you saw your parents? 
So when I when in 2003, when I left to go get yeah. recruited, I never went home. I never went home. Because if I went home, I would get captured. People they, would know I'm, a, I'm in the military. So, so maybe it was an advantage for you for yeah. nobody to know who you were. Exactly. To be in a quiet when, guy. Nobody, nobody knew anything, even in the Iraqi military. Nobody yeah. knew because I never went home. Truly, the ones that were under the... The danger the is the one that had kids and family and they had to go home on, on leave. And that's the dangerous is that most of the people I was fighting with were Kurds. They came from Kurdistan, so the neighborhoods are safe. Some of them were the south of Iraq. They didn't have Al-Qaeda, they didn't have all these, uh, you know, like the Sunni, the Sunni kind of extremists in their areas. Um, people who lived in Baghdad, they were the biggest target. Some of them would go home and never come back, and you don't, we never found what happened to them. So I never went home, and I just stayed in uniform. And uh, after that battle, I got, uh, received a battlefield promotion. I, I became a sergeant major in the Iraqi military, and uh, within a week, the American Special Forces requested me to become the Iraqi MOD Command Sergeant Major because I was the only NCO that spoke English at that point. You were the only NCO that spoke English yeah, at that point? at that point. And at what point did you start providing intel to the U.S.? When did, when did that 2005, when I actually got appointed to the Iraqi MOD. 2005, you would be how old in 2005? Some 19 years old, 19 yes? 19 years old, yeah. So at 19 years old, you're not providing intel to, to, to U.S.? I became official intelligence asset for the U.S. intelligence. And who are you yeah. communicating with? You're communicating with, I know a lot of your information would go to the White House. President Bush have a lot of your uh, briefings would be given to him. General yeah. Petraeus, you know, yeah. you, got, you got a lot of these. In the beginning, it was actually uh, strictly to the U.S. military intelligence. So strictly to the U.S. military so Strictly in the beginning. Okay. That was like the beginning when I got recruited. Is it because they still don't trust you? It's kind of like... N a no, I don't think it was, uh, it was about a trust. It was that I was just the right candidate in that building because these were Americans. Their job was to build the infrastructure of the Iraqi military. They would cross every single day from an area called the Green Zone, which is a U.S.-controlled area, to the MOD, which is a next door to the Green Zone. So once the Americans come into this building, this is not considered a U.S base. Um, 50, about 50 of them, but one thing they didn't uh, realize that the American government that the terrorist organization in Iraq started forming themselves as a political party. You have people in the government that actually works with Al-Qaeda. You have people in the government that works with Iran. Um, you had literally every single one of your enemies inside of that building, but the Americans did not know how to react or how to deal with that because this was new for them. I was basically the only candidate for them that was a young age, never been in the old government, never been in the old Iraqi military, and spoke English, and it was more of the Americanized NCO, someone who was trained strictly by the Americans. And um, I was basically the, the, the assurance to their safety being in the building. How did they not know that you're providing intel the, on the Iraqi side, the enemy side, not necessarily uh, on the U.S. side? How were you able to get the intel and provide it to them without them knowing that you're the one that's providing intel for them? Uh, because they, they, nobody knew what, who I, I had anything to do with Americans. My job was to be the command sergeant major to provide security for the building from inside and outside of the building. How, how are you, when are you meeting with U.S. to give them the intel or the information? So in 2005, uh, my, my main job was to protect the intelligent team that was there to collect intel inside of the building. Later on, uh, when I got recruited by the, o by the OGA agents, uh, there was nothing, I, I would not have any communications in that building with any Americans whatsoever. Perhaps uh, the Americans were uh, told not to speak to me if they see me in the hallway. And I would only meet them in the green zone in a secure location, about six miles from that place. Nobody followed you to know where you're going? Nobody no, because was uh, they paranoid don't have of you? green zone badges. I was the only one with the access to Who the Who gave areas. you green zone badges? Americans. 
But wouldn't that be a tip on, you know, like to, to know that you... Nobody would, knew, knew I had that kind of access. Oh, nobody knew you had that kind no, of access. No, no, nobody knew. And there was nobody following you. No, of course, I, I would know I was, I was trained to make sure that no one follows me because there are certain people that had access inside of the green zone. But cer cer certain places, I would go inside of a U.S. bases in the green zone and areas where, where no Iraqi local nationals would exist. Now, who were some of the most dangerous people that you associated yourself with at the time that were people that could, you know, cause, cre create a lot of havoc? Um, back then it was members, uh, so we had a list of all the operators that were operating inside of the MOD, but our number one and number two, of course, is Al-Qaeda and the Islamic State operatives back then, which later on became ISIS. The, these individuals were extremely dangerous. They were not just there to collect intelligence, they actually had the potential to hurt Americans. So the, some of the individuals that I actually went toe-to-toe -to -toe with was Sabah Dilemi, which is, was known to be a terrorist in the Ambar province which was actually inside of the building as well. They were killing Americans in the Ambar province, but they got access uh, through the Iraqi uh, Minister of Defense to be inside of the building. And uh, they all have badges, and they try to kidnap an American officer from inside of the building in 2005. And you're in the middle of all this stuff. Yeah, I, I mean, at that age, at 19 years old, I know I was dying. You I, accepted it. I, I had a car bomb blowing up every single day in my checkpoint. I had suicide bombers blowing up. That's just in the front checkpoint. I'm not talking about the bad people inside. I had mortars, I had katushas falling. My chance of me dying was any day. I would come out at six o'clock in the morning to the checkpoint and every single day I would have something that goes on. So I was gonna die anyway. It's just customize your own death. How do you wanna go down? And for me was, if I can cause them as much damage as possible, I would do so. And the, the, I think to this day, I believe I was the only intelligent asset in Iraq that Al-Qaeda and all these terrorist organizations could not kill because I was a military soldier. I was protected by my soldiers. I was protected by my teams. I don't go to leave home. I don't put on uniform like the rest of the Iraqi officers. You sleep officers. at the barracks every night? Uh, I sleep at a place where they think I sleep, but I sleep somewhere else. Where were you sleeping? I was sleeping in a different building than where my room was. In a was. building. In, in a, a building, okay, yeah. yeah. Got it. Yeah. So I slept actually in an area where there were, there's nobody was sleeping there. I would actually enter my room and I would leave through a window and I would go sleep where my other place is because I couldn't trust anybody in the What inside. kind of a life do you have at that time? Do you have any kind of a personal life? Anything? No, nothing. Nothing? Completely no life. No friend, no women, no girl, no nothing. family, no, no one to talk to? Nothing. Once I became an intelligent asset for the U.S. intelligence, I became a machine. For how long did that last? Until from 2005 to 2007. You almost have to have no feelings to be able to do that job. It, really, there was no feelings about it. Yeah. I think the joy for it for me personally, it was seeing those guys go down. That's the joy for me. I enjoyed every bit of it. I wasn't. When did you know that your purpose, you served your purpose? Like when was it when you said, I finally got my vengeance? Was there ever a feeling like no, that for you? I Til never today. got it. Till today. Till today you don't have Til it. Till today. I actually cried when I left the MOD, when they told me that I had to leave. And one of my uh, intel sources, one of my team members got killed. They shot him in the head. And it was a message to let me know that we'll wait for you forever until you come out of this building. And um, I didn't want to leave. And the only reason that my friend died, uh, because I decided to stay. 07, at what point do you come to the States? Like how long? 2008. Oh, so you follow, and how did you come here? But what was the... Uh, the U.S. government brought me here. They, they brought out you? Yep, yep. Okay. 
And then from there, do you have a career here? What do you? How do you make your money so here? Is there a job? I, I came here in 2008, yeah. and I went straight to doing training on insider threat. As you know, I was like the only intelligent mm -hmm. asset that was operating with individual that would work with you or enemy that would work with you within the same area. Um, so I came here and I started doing training for the U.S. Uh, military, training them on insider threat. Contractor? Training, uh, training them specifically U.S. military advisors who are working with the Iraqi military. As a consultant? Uh, as, as a trainer, as a culture advisor, as a, as a consultant. Till today? I've been doing that for about 10 years and when my book kind of got released, I became a motivational speaker and I started becoming more of an entrepreneur investing in myself. But I did this out of love to the military. You know, they used to pay me whatever and I used to go. Uh, even if I didn't get paid, I would still go. I felt it was a duty for me to um, return the favor that the, the, the United States have done. What's for me. next for you? You're 34 years old. I mean, motivational speaking, you can do that, but it's not like, you know, when you got the kind of life experience that you got, you know, sometimes there's a temptation to want to do something bigger. Like, what's long term aspirations for you? Next thing for me, uh, I would believe, is politics. And that's what most of my fans have been asking. Here or? Here. Here. Absolutely. No aspirations ever to go back? No, absolutely Zero. not. Zero. I'm done. You found your home? I can never go back. Okay. Yeah. Even if a revolution takes place and things yeah, get settled down? It could down. be. You know, if, if, the, if the young generation of Iraq win, yeah, it could be a possibility I can go back to visit. So, I got a question for you. Yeah, I have the map here. Yeah. Okay. So, obviously, when, when most people look at this map, you know, it's just kind of like, okay, it's the Middle East. You got Saudi Arabia, Yemen, um, you know, you got Kuwait, uh, uh, Dubai, you got uh, Jordan, Israel, Lebanon, yeah. Syria, Iraq, Iran. How do you look at this when you see this map? What's the first thing you think about and look at when you see this map? Um, I hope it won't insult anybody. No, but, it's all good. Uh, I look of neighbors that we shouldn't have. You look at neighbors that you shouldn't have? <laughs> yeah. It's it just have never been... Uh, you know, like some of them has not done, but I would say, you know, like uh, when you look at Saudi Arabia and Iran, is it's two neighbors that never done you any good. That's These have never done you any good. No. Why them? Why Saudi Arabia? Why Saudi Arabia? Uh, I think Saudi Arabia recently has changed its, its politics mm -hmm. towards, the, towards Iraq. They have been helpful, which I want to say in the last few years. Mm -hmm. But before they weren't, you know, before, you know, from 2003 up to 2000 and maybe, you know, uh, 13, 14, uh, it was uh, just as much the same intention as Iran. They were actually taking care of their business and their conflict with Iran in, in Iraq. And it cost Iraqis, a lot of Iraqis, their lives. How do you view Israel? Israel, I had a plenty of respect for Israel. I think Israel, as a small country, has established itself and uh, producing something good for their own people. They're coming with technologies. They're coming with something that's great. Whenever that Arabs learns to do the same thing, they will do great for their nations. I don't believe, by the way, Israel is behind every problem in the Middle East as it's a norm we have in the Middle East. If, if someone's uh, bathroom door breaks, they will bl blame Israel for it. But that's been a psychological... Who's they? Uh, governments. I know, but when you say like, they will blame, who like, is uh, they? The people. Because they're used to it. They've been soaked in this ideology. To say it's all Israel's yeah, fault. absolutely. I still and have people in Iraq that tell me, like, oh, I think Israel is behind this. And I'm like, you'll be crazy to think that. Who Israel gets credit for that? Mainstream media? As it goes uh, back to media? or Mainstream uh, the, media, the, the Ayatollahs, the, the people who are against Israel, the enemy of Israel, benefit out of that. But I, I don't believe that's actually a, a reality or true. Uh, Israel does not have any interest in some of the things that are happening. But 
their enemies would like to blame it on them. So you, you, you saw World War III was trending 1.59 million times. It was uh, trending on Twitter, hashtag being used. Is there any likelihood of anything crazy taking place with war coming out of the Middle East? Any chances of that taking place where it leads to a big war? It could. Um, if the Ayatollah get more aggressive, I think if the Ayatollah does not pull his hands out of this, those countries or the Middle East in general, um, I can see that uh, the Middle, I can see that not countries going against Iran. I can see each country going against its own. That's what I see. You can see each country going, going against, against its, its own. own. Because in Iraq, we're not in Iraq. We're not going against the Iranian people. Uh, we're going against the people that are being appointed, our own people that are being appointed by yeah. the Ayatollah. So, uh, and that's been the goal, is to keep us divided. The only way we can break out of that is to be united and not care about what our backgrounds are and just to look at, we're Iraqis. doesn't matter where you come from. You know, if you're Yazidi, Shabak, if you're a Sunni, Shia, uh, Christian, whatever you are, uh, it doesn't matter. Once we learn to look at that, we can break out of the chains the Ayatollah put on us. How often when you were in Iraq and you went to school, how often would they talk about the Strait of Hormuz? Like, was that a typical conversation or not really? Actually, we, we looked at it just in geography. Yeah. Um, we know that the, um, the Gulf, we call it the Gulf. Yeah. Uh, I know that Iranians call it the Persian Gulf. Arabs call it the Arabian <laughs> Gulf. Arabian you Gulf. call it the Gulf. I just call it the Gulf okay. because I really don't know where the truth is. And sometimes you really have to think. You can't go with your emotions when it comes to what you've been told. Sometimes you really have to think geographically, who, where does this area belong to? But I think Iran has been using this as a, a pressure point on the rest of the world. And it needs to be a way where this place needs to be utilized, where this place needs to be controlled. It's a method of bullying. It's a method it of is. leverage for them. It's a method yeah. of them putting the fear because yeah. when you got uh, uh, most of the oil in Asia coming from here, China, all those yeah. guys are relying on this. Yeah. They are very worried about conflict being here because then that means they're going to be paying the price because exactly. yeah. China doesn't have as much oil as they think I they do. I mean, look do. what happened in the UK recently, you know? They, they easily took a, a British ship out of the place. I That's mean, right. And, and they, are, they use it to actually to... Uh, to, to, they use it to pressure certain countries in Europe and, and uh, in the Middle East, too. These are interesting times, man. I mean, I, uh, I look yeah. at the people of Iran, and they, yeah. they, they message me, and we talk all the time yeah. regularly, and yeah. you feel for them. Because I lived there for 10 years, and I yeah. know what it was like to be a kid, and we're going against Saddam. So Iran's yeah. going against Iraq, and eight Saddam years, is bombing, yeah, and this whole yeah. eight years. And yeah. I'm living in the capital, we're getting bombed, we're going to the city of Karaj, Bandar Pahlavi yeah. at the time, Drash, yeah. everywhere you're going, bombing. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's a lot of fear that it puts in kids, but uh, there's a lot of true believers that came out of it that are also looking forward to seeing a revolution take place, to possibly go back and visit their homeland. It will be very, very interesting to see what happens here in Iran um, in the next three, six, 12 months. 12 months, yes. I think if Iran fixes itself, the rest of the Middle East will, fit, will be automatically in peace. If the Iranian people make that change, it's a change for every nation in the Middle East. That's how I feel. Yeah, I think for that to happen, um, a lot of it has to do with U.S., depending on who's running the regime here, yeah. switches politics on who they support. It becomes exactly. too much about politics. And when Iran was good with the Shah being there and there was peace, I mean, obviously nothing is perfect. Tamas Saddam Hussein had 35 different exactly. military intelligence, yeah. you know, uh, yeah. while uh, uh, the Shah had Savak. Yeah. 
But uh, I think if it goes back to good, the people that have been abusing these nations with oil, if they get out of the way and don't do the bullying and the games, I think it can stay peaceful. But if it doesn't, there's always going to be another Khomeini, another Saddam Hussein to inspire where they're growing up looking up to these guys and they want to be the next one. I want to be the next Soleimani. Uh, uh, I don't think it's going to be as easy as uh, if Iran is peace, Middle East is going to be peace. I think it's going to be a good 40, 60 year of control before that takes place because you got to get the generations to have more peace in them. If you don't take this government, you're going to have maybe a hundred Ayatollah for the next decade. I, I agree with you. I agree with yeah, you. It's not going to change. And that's why I think, you know, I we expect things to come peacefully, but... Oh, it's not going to be. It's not going no, to be. No, it's yeah. going to be very, very ugly. Uh, one time I sat down with a guy, this guy's a billionaire. His family's worth $3.9 billion. And I'm trying to do business with them. And we're sitting down, I'm an insurance, I'm coming up, I'm 30 years old. He, at the time, is the son of this family that's worth $3.9 billion. He sits there with me and says, listen, Patrick, here's the difference between us and you. We know you want us to do this deal with you. We'd love to do it. But for us, I wake up every morning with one job. My job is to protect our family's billions. Your job is to make billions. It's a different situation. You need to take risks. We don't need to take risks. I think there's a lot of nations that don't want to see a lot of movement here because any kind of risks hurts them. They would much rather be at peace, but these guys, the Iranian populace has to be looking at it as a coming up with the opportunity for them. They're fighting for their future freedom, and it's going to take some courage and guts and risk to be able to make that happen for them. We got to learn to take losses. It's inevitable. It's easier for you and I to say we're sitting over here than for them watching and say you don't know what it's like to be the parent or the kids and all this other stuff. But at the same time, it is what it is. Look, final thoughts. I watched your documentary, the first military intelligence documentary that was done. It was very uh, interesting on Amazon. And the book as well, uh, I highly recommend you. If you want to know more about what's going on today, and I think it's something for you to find out for yourself, you got to go study some of these things in uh, today's times. Probably, I'd say probably more than in the last 19 years. Okay, 18 years since 9-11 happened. I think it's probably more important today to study the conflicts taking place in the Middle East today than probably in the last 10 or 15 years. Having said that, Hamoudi, thank you so much for coming out and sharing your intel with the rest of us and some of the information and experiences with the rest of us. My pleasure. It's an honor to be here. It's been a blast. Thanks, everybody, for listening. And by the way, if you haven't already subscribed to Valuetainment on iTunes, please do so. Give us a five-star. Write a review if you haven't already. And if you have any questions for me that you may have, you can always find me on Snapchat, Instagram, Facebook, or YouTube. Just search my name, Patrick Bidavid. And I actually do respond back when you snap me or send me a message on Instagram. With that being said, have a great day today. Take care, everybody. Bye-bye.